Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Mark Waddell, Associate Professor of History, Philosophy, and Sociology of Science in the Department of History at Michigan State University in beautiful East Lansing, Michigan, to talk about his recent book, Magic, Science, and Religion in Early Modern Europe, out this year, 2021, with Cambridge University Press. Hello, Mark. Hello, Yana. How are you doing today? How's East Lansing? Uh, East Lansing is great. It's sunny. Uh, it is not snowing. Uh, <laughs> there are crocuses coming up, so life is good. Wow. Yeah, that is a sure sign of spring. Absolutely. Are you face-to-face this spring? No. No, everything is uh, Zoom. Everything is far away. So, wow. so uh, that's interesting because I mean, Lyman Briggs is a very unique educational experience, so I would imagine it's really impactful. I'm guessing our, our uh, impactful. I use that word aloud. Um, I am guessing our listeners don't know much about, or many of them have not heard of the Lyman Briggs situation. Will you tell us about it? Sure. So yeah, Briggs is a residential college within Michigan State. So uh, Michigan State has three of these residential colleges. Briggs is dedicated to the study of science and its connections with uh, culture and sort of human human societies. Um, and so uh, as, you know, as a smaller residential college, we have about 40 to 50 instructors and faculty uh, covering everything from physics and chemistry to history and sociology and science com and all sorts of different things. Um, so it's very much a sort of liberal arts uh, model within a, a giant research university, and and so you're right. This this switch to teaching virtually has been really challenging for a college that prides itself on small class sizes and a lot of student uh, instructor interaction. Um, so we've had to really do some some thinking. Right, how can we give students, especially like first year students uh, who are experiencing this, this, this pandemic in a really unusual way, how do we give them the Briggs experience um, as much as we can virtually? So. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Challenges. Yeah. Cause it's residential. They, you all live together. Well, not you. I, right. But they all live together. Right. That's right. That's right. So, so normally our, our first year students would be living in the, in the building where we all have our offices, where we teach, where they have their, uh, their, their labs and things like that. And so uh, normally it's, it's wonderful. You get to see students in the, in the hallway. They, they, they drop by your office to say hi, they get to know each other really well and form really strong cohorts, which at a university that has, you know, 50,000 students, is really important, um, and so unfortunately, yeah, this uh, this year's class of incoming students has has really struggled with that. So, um, so we've done what we can as faculty to 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 make up for that for that deficit, but um, but yeah, I think we're all hoping and 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 wishing that this coming fall will will yeah. look a bit different. Yeah, I, th- I mean, for so many reasons, we're hoping things are kind of something close to normal in the fall. But this is, you know, um, in the whole grand scheme of your life, college may only be a few years, but they're so important for your development and the person you're going to become. And it's a, you know, when I think about college, I think about that I am surrounded constantly by my friends. I'm 
always with people. I have this group of people and I feel really, I feel like these kids are really missing out on what, you know, was so good. Yes. Right. And maybe once, if and when they're back in person, it will, as a, in sort of, as a kind of, uh, in, in, in hindsight, be a way for them to kind of bond, right? We were, we were that one <laughs> that had this really unique experience together, but um, I know it's been, it's been really challenging. Yeah, it is. And there's nothing, there's, there's no way to, to like mimic the, not like annoying your roommate at one o'clock in the morning because you've just read Kafka for the first time. Like that, that is a thing that you can only do in college. Exactly. All right. Well, let's move on to happier topics, (laughs) (laughs) which is your, your, your monograph here. All right. Let's just hop in. So I'm looking at your CV and I see a pretty strong theme. Um, your first monograph from Ashgate in 2015 was Jesuit Science and the End of Nature's Secrets. It's a great title. Thank um, you. And it seems to go really well, like hand in hand with this work. And I see you've also written some articles about the Jesuits writ, lar- writ large and a few Jesuits, like an Athanasius Kircher, a Jesuit priest. Yeah, did I get that? Was I close? Yeah, I mean, Athanasius Kircher is how I pronounce it, but who knows? Yeah, that sounds yeah. that sounds right. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's not around to let us know. That's right. Uh, which is a but kind of you know. So you write a lot about how the Jesuits and how they interact with science, which kind of and they stand in for religion, kind of religious forces writ large. So this book really seems to fit right in. So I want to know more specifics. Like how did how did this guy take shape? How did you choose to write this one? Yeah. So this was unlike unlike my first monograph and and a lot of academic monographs where it sort of comes from the work that we decide to do, right? Whether it's on our dissertation or something else, this was uh, a project that was um, sort of offered to me. So um, Lucy Reimer, who is one of the editors at at Cambridge, uh, she's the history of science and medicine editor, among other things. She, she, she approached me and said, you know, um, we have this uh, this new series, um, new approaches to the history of science and medicine, and she wanted a course book. She wanted something that would be suitable for undergraduate students, for uh, instructors to assign to their students. Um, and she thought, you know, something that is broad ranging, that can touch on science, religion, and also magic uh, would be really useful. And and in fact, yeah, when I uh, began putting together a, a, a proposal, I was looking at courses offered at, at schools and at universities around the world and courses involving science and religion, science and magic, all these different uh, combinations were really popular and are growing in popularity. Um, and so there is a, you know, there is a market for this, which is great. Um, what I really liked about um, Lucy's proposal and her suggestion was an opportunity to write for a much wider audience. Um, you know, writing a, 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 an academic monograph that's intended for experts, uh, there is something satisfying about that, but you're talking to a very small audience, right? That's just the nature of academic publishing, at least in, 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 in my field. Uh, and I really welcomed the opportunity to write for um, for just a broader audience, not just students, but anybody with an interest in learning something about this history. 
You know, that uh, that, uh, that makes sense. Having read it, it, re- it reads, it's a really nice read. It's uh, gentle and it's got good stories and it goes together. Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, that's the point of this whole podcast is that we we do this amazing work and then nobody knows about it. Right. I mean, I always joke that like my mom hasn't even read my book, but it's that's not a joke and it's yeah. kind of a oh. bummer. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it's nice to put that work in, in and imagine an audience reading it. So. I mean, yeah, you know, it, it took me about nine years to get my first book published, and that was Blood, Sweat, and Tears, right? And um, and yes, uh, you know, members of my family and friends were like, great, I'll, I'll buy a copy for $100, because that's, of course, how much it costs. And mm-hmm. I said, please don't read it. Please don't even bother. Just don't put yourself through that. Uh, but this... Um, this, this is different, right? This is something that I, I genuinely think people will read and hopefully, um, and, and, you know, Lyman Briggs, which I was talking about earlier, we are a, a, a teaching focused college. That is the focus in sort of everything that, that the faculty do. And again, producing a piece of work that's intended to be used in the classroom, uh, for me was, it just fit really perfectly with, with my own career, with, 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 with my position at MSU. So, um, I was really happy when Lucy approached me and asked if I could do this. Great. Um, that is not to say that it is not also suitable for an academic audience, right? It, it does. And it contributes to a lot of ongoing historiographical discussions. And this is, this is a legit book. It just is also readable. Sure. Sure. Yes. (laughs) Right. I don't want to pretend that, right. It's just, uh, yeah. Uh, like a spark notes. Uh, no, it's, it is a little bit more than that, hopefully. <laughs> okay. So um, I'm going to just go with me on the, the order here <laughs> that sure. we're going to go. We'll sure. get to the argument in a minute. But so this is uh, the study of, of magic, science, and religion. And it, it takes part takes place in the early modern period, roughly 14, like, you know, post, post-Buck death to 1750. Yeah. Um, so why is that period such a good time to study this stuff? Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, so I, I am biased, right? I, um, I fell in love with this period when I was a student myself. Uh, I think it's the most interesting, fascinating period in, at least in European, you know, intellectual history or even just European history period. Um, and it's it's so interesting because it was a time of um, such interesting, chaotic, uh, and tremendous debate uh, between so many different different people, right? And it was it was a time period that was pulled simultaneously in at least two different directions. If we if we think about time as a kind of fixed line, um, we have the Renaissance. We have you know starting in the in the 14th and 15th centuries, very much backwards looking in terms of chronology, right? Looking back to classical antiquity, to to the Greeks and and to the Romans for inspiration. Uh, How do do we build uh, a a new society after things like the Black Death, right? Uh, And so many people, so many intellectuals, philosophers, artists were looking to the past for inspiration. And at the same time, 
even as they were recovering works and they were um, building on those works, we have people who are pushing in a different direction, pushing away from that history and saying, well, this is all fine, but it's not perfect, right? There is more to be said. Uh, and, uh, and so we get people like Vissings, who decides, I, Galen, who was the great medical authority from Roman antiquity, uh, whose works have been used for 1,500 years, roughly. Um, you know, Salius says, well, Galen got it wrong about a lot of things about human anatomy. It's time to correct those mistakes that we've just been passing down through more than a thousand years of medical education. And so we get this really fascinating um, bifurcation almost between this, uh, this real glorification and, and celebration of the ancient world, along with people saying, I want to press forward and do something new and something innovative. And uh, this whole period that the book covers, which is 300 years almost, um, is is that story, right, of the world uh, in 1400 in terms of the way that the educated saw it is radically different than the world that we find them that they find themselves in in 1750, right? It's so radically different um, in ways that it's I think difficult for us as modern 21st century people to really grasp how quickly changes were happening and how sweeping and how comprehensive some of those changes were. Um, and so that was, that to me is very exciting. Um, it's I'm very clear in the book though, that this is not a story about quote progress, right? This is not a story about um, the errors of the past being corrected by you know, forward-looking innovators. That's a very old idea that, uh, that historians in the sort of mid-20th century were very fond of, of, of perpetuating. Um, this instead, for me, I've tried to capture the kind of um, how, how muddy and how chaotic uh, and how exhilarating this time period was uh, as people just proposed an endless series of, well, what if, what if the world looks like this? What if the world functions this way? What if it's made up of these things? Uh, and they would debate back and forth and they would look for evidence and they would uh, come up with new theories in, in the following generation. I just, I just love it. Um, and by contrast, and I know that this is not true because uh, modern science and medicine hugely innovative and advanced very, very rapidly, but it seems almost like, it seems very static today with one universal conception of what the universe is and how it works. You go back to this period and there's a hundred different conversations about that same question. Um, and that's, that's what I wanted to really capture was that, that energy. Um, uh, and the, uh, how how committed people were to finding answers to these really big questions about like what is the nature of everything yeah and which we can figure out if we just maybe say write it all down that's right that's right or if we just keep arguing with each other over and over again maybe we'll come up with the answer eventually yeah it is a delightful time and then uh, and i think you know the the um the the mid 14th century plague 
is a huge deal. And then the discovery of a whole new hemisphere and that doesn't fit. And like, what do we do with all of that? And this, all these new items that are pouring in and new ways to think about it. It is a delightful and exciting time. Um, and, but, you know, then we have these other things that are really foundational to what it means to be a European, what it means to be, you know, Christian. Um, and, and those are, those are sticking around and there's this idea that they maybe need to be refined, but they're not losing import at this point either. So, yeah. And that's, and I think that's, that's a really good point, right? So things like, um, fundamental Christian doctrine. I mean, we have the Reformation. We have a lot of people who are challenging and talking about different points of doctrine. But um, yeah, a lot of it of Christian remains largely the same throughout all of this, right? And people keep pointing to it over and over again. And so it is one of those foundational things for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then the negotiation that you have to do there, like, yep. find this, but we know this. Yeah, makes for some really neat stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and so let's let's get into it. What just um, what are your sources? Like, uh, what's what what are you using? Because that influences the story you're telling. It does, yeah. So, and this is one of the things I, I acknowledge this in the in the introduction. You know, this is a it's kind of intellectual history or history of ideas at thirty thousand feet, right? I mean, this is intended to be this overview um, and. You know, obviously, if this is going to be uh, or an introductory text, then that's kind of what I have to do. Um, but that means that uh, I'm I'm really only looking at what is being written, what is being published, what is being discussed by a very small minority of people. Um, you know, looking at the educated elite of of this period. And that meant almost entirely men uh, and, you know, men who were trained in a very particular um, university system, right? That had a, a foundational canon of texts that everybody knew. Um, and, you know, there's that kind of history, this sort of, you know, we're just talking about what uh, a bunch of old white men believed and thought that's obviously problematic in lots of ways. Um, but looking at this period, if we want to get a sense of what people were uh, debating and thinking and these really big questions about the nature of the universe and humanity's place in it, um, we don't have a lot of sources from people outside of that system. We don't have a lot of sources that have survived uh, from women at all. Right or men who were excluded from from the systems, and so we're left with right a set of sources that are themselves fairly limited in terms of the kinds of people that they that they represent. Right, um, there isn't a lot of diversity there. Uh, that's you know this is the problem that I think anyone who works on pre-modern history really has to wrestle with uh, is there are sources and there are voices that have survived, but they're fragmentary or they're difficult to, to track down. Um, and for the, for the story that I was trying to tell in this book, 
uh, with with a few small exceptions, those voices and those and those sources just weren't there. Uh, and so, um, and so, yeah, we're sort of looking at uh, looking at printed works. So um, we're looking at least for the first half of the narrative, looking at things written in Latin as opposed to in vernacular languages for the most part. Um, and written by and in response to a very select group of people uh, with very similar backgrounds and a very similar education. So you can take part in, so you can really get into though, a discourse that can be continent wide, but still really geographically, you know, broad, but re- really focused in this tight cultural moment. And don't you don't have to apologize for that. That's what the study's for, you know? Yes, right. Right. I mean, the, we every study, all we can do is work with our sources and then be, you know, be thoughtful about them. Which is, and that's, and that's certainly very true. I think that's interesting, you know, in terms of my own training and how much has changed in the, in the 20 years I've been in, in academia, right, where you work on early modern history. Yeah, you're, you're generally going to be looking at sources written by men. Um, and... But also, in, as an educator, as someone who, who's trying to sort of educate people about history, you know, you can't help but sort of that to the conversations we're having, and as as we as we should be having, right, in the in the present day about inclusion and 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 other communities' voices. So it makes for this sometimes this 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 uneasy tension. Um, but, but yeah, you're right. This is this is the nature of 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 the study that I that I wrote. So. And, uh, you know, and it does, you, you have, it's part of this learned discourse, which is, you know, as we were just talking about uh, getting academics work to other people and getting it out there, this is a conversation. I mean, this is, these are conversations that are happening in a similarly kind of closed world. Absolutely. Very true. Very true. Um, Okay. Um, So the book sits at the intersection of what you identify as the three distinct sets of beliefs and practices magic, science, and religion. And in fact, defining these topics occupies much of the text, right? So let's let's get into that. You start with a discussion of what you call learned magic. What is right. that? Yeah, so, um, so historians and anthropologists and, and others who've studied magical practices used to make a distinction between high and low magic. Uh, and I'm kind of Changing that a little bit to say learned or, or learned magic and and sort of folk magic uh, and so learned magic is or, or was at least in this in, in this period it was largely derived from classical sources right so this was magic that was practiced by for the most part learned or educated men uh, it was magic that was highly philosophical in its in its context right and so. One of the examples of a magical system that I talk about is that derived from the pseudo-mythical figure of Hermes, right? Uh, Hermes, the thrice powerful, uh, who supposedly lived at the time of Moses, was an ancient Egyptian sage, and who had passed down this wisdom that he had accumulated. Um, And it was a mix of philosophy theology, and in some cases also magical practice, right? So, and at its most basic, magic, as these folks would have defined it, is just 
the idea that nature or the natural world is filled with invisible forces and properties and correspondences that someone, if they're knowledgeable enough, can manipulate, right? They can find those hidden things and tweak them and twist them so that nature produces something that that person desires, right? Um, and so Learned Magic was about looking back to these ancient figures like Hermes uh, and many others as well. And so it was very much about deriving uh, knowledge and wisdom about the structure of the universe, the connection between God and God's creation. That was, that's, that's a really important theme. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was all sort of generally practiced by, by men. It was passed on in, in books written in Latin. It was intended for a very small audience. I know. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then we can, um, we can compare that with some other sorts. Like let's compare that right now, actually with magic as understood in the witch hunts. Um, right. Right. Which you talk about a great deal. Yeah, so the witch hunts are they're so interesting. And of course, so much has been written, so much amazing stuff has been written on the European hunts. Um, but yeah, so the witch hunts are this really interesting, a very long moment, sort of centuries long moment in which learned culture in terms of theology and in terms of magic interacts with uh, sort of popular and folk beliefs about religion, sort of folk religion and superstition, but also folk magic, right? So the kind of magic that was practiced by uh, individuals in villages and towns and cities, people who were not necessarily university educated, um, who may have been literate, but who generally learned to do magic through kind of hands-on apprenticeships. And so these are the people we might imagine, right? People who would make, um, uh, you know, healing salves, right, or love potions, or um, charms to avert bad luck, right? These, 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 uh, these sorts of people were were ubiquitous across Europe. They were in every, almost every town, every village, um, and their ideas about magic were very much. They, they were practical. They were not at all philosophical for the most part. Um, there was no real wondering about how it worked. It was just efficacious, right? It was just people need help. And this, uh, the village midwife or wise woman or hedge witch, whatever, had the means to help people. And the witch hunts are this interesting moment where the educated elite, the inquisitors, the magistrates, the philosophers begin to pay particular attention to these traditions of folk magic and find them really problematic um, and suggesting that there's some sort of demonic or you know, satanic conspiracy involving many of these practitioners. Um, and that's certainly not the only thing that precipitated the hunts, but it, it, it became a really important part of it. Yeah. And then the result, though, um, I recently, if you're interested, listeners, I recently talked to Michael Bailey about his book, The Origin of the Witch's Sabbath. So you can go oh, look yeah. that up. Okay. Yeah, really cool stuff there. But so we have yeah, this kind of, it's a collision between these people um, and then this belief set, a belief about what these women are doing. But it, it paints 
it, it becomes um, a fairly constitutive event. Yeah. I mean, is that something you would agree with? Yes, absolutely. Um, and yeah, it's, it is, it is really interesting to see how, you know, again, you know, times have changed in terms of how historians have, have approached this, this sort of idea of a lot of people used to think this was a very top down thing, right? That learned beliefs and assumptions were imposed on the sort of popular classes. And we think uh, now we have a, a much more nuanced idea of how different groups of people were influencing each other in terms of the kinds of narratives they were telling, right? And how they were incorporating their respective contexts into those narratives. And then what emerged was this really frightening idea about what witches were, about who they were and what they were and 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 what they were doing. Um, and, you know, in my book, I, I argue that the witch hunts kind of are, they represent the end of an unproblematic view of magic, right? Especially popular or folk magic, something that had been considered uncontroversial for the most part and was widely accepted uh, by the sort of early 17th century after the witch hunts has sort of begun to die down. Magic is no longer uncomplicated, right? It is, it is seen by almost everybody as potentially really problematic. Uh, and that goes a significant way towards explaining why magic disappears as a topic of serious discussion uh, by the 18th century. Right. When you, you go from this discussion of the witches and you pivot to medicine, which may seem jarring for a modern audience, but as an early modernist, it makes perfect sense, right? Uh, so you talk about a lot of like what we would probably, if a modern person were to look at it, they might call it magic but it falls under um, medicinal perp, like it falls under medicine. Uh, so can you tell us about that? What's medicine in this period? Yeah, that's, that's a really big question. It's, it's interesting. So yeah, so first of all, folk magic and folk medicine, right, in terms of the kinds of things that were practiced uh, in uh, cities and towns and villages across Europe were blurred, right? So your local practitioner uh, of folk magic who might be, you know, selling charms to avert bad fortune would also be um, selling charms to help in childbirth, right? Or to avert illness or, 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 or disease. These things were really often conflated. You know, medicine uh, in this period was, and folk medicine was so important because academic medicine was uh, very limited, right? In, in its scope, in its reach. Uh, and by that, I mean people who were educated in universities as physicians. Uh, and so the medical curriculum at most universities was very traditional, very conventional. Uh, it was focused around people like Avicenna, uh, who was a great Arabic physician uh, and who was inspired by Galen, who, who I mentioned before. And uh, it was a very, you know, historians have kind of described it as, as a very kind of stultified uh, curriculum. Students learn the same things by rote, generation after generation, um, and there was very there was no real hands-on experience. Whereas the average person, of course, needed broken bones to be set, cataracts to be removed, and they were not going to see academic physicians to do that. They were going to see barber surgeons, um, right? They were going to see again hands-on, uh, practically 
trained practitioners um, who may not have any, uh, you know, university medical education, but who had a much better understanding of the human body, uh, how to fix it than a lot of academic positions did. Uh, and so there's this interesting um, and very much class-based distinction between practitioners. Um, and the magic component, right, it's, I mean, people have been using magic as part of medicine forever. Uh, and that was certainly true in, in this period as well. Um, and that, again, becomes complicated by the witch hunts and by this sort of general uh, and growing unease about magic. Well, and if the you're visiting your neighbor because you want a lucky charm, and then you're visiting that same neighbor because you are like you can't get pregnant, and you visit that same neighbor because you've been you've been nauseated for two months and you can't eat, like so that that becomes really messy, right? That those are really porous walls. Absolutely right, and. And of course, people people understood that someone who knows how to heal and how to cure the body, of course, would also know how to poison and how to sicken the body. Um, and a lot of uh, medical folk, med- folk medicine practitioners uh, were highly skilled herbalists. They would know exactly what plants to use um, to help someone feel better. But that, of course, also meant that they knew exactly what to do if they wanted to harm someone. Um, and that's, that's one of the sort of terrible ironies of the witch hunts and the way that it casts so much suspicion and mistrust on, on not just magic, but on sort of folk expertise in general, right? Especially expertise held by women, uh, that, uh, communities ended up ridding themselves of the very people who, in fact, they had been depending on to keep them healthy and, um, to help mediate in disputes, I mean, in, in sort of all of this part of the the sort of social fabric of these of these communities, um, and uh, and so right, um, and because illness and sickness was ubiquitous, it was everywhere. It was also one of the precipitating events that uh, would begin accusations of witchcraft almost always. Uh, when someone accused an, an, another person of of practicing witchcraft, it was because someone had fallen sick or died, especially children. And uh, and so, yeah, that's why a knowledge of medicine and medical practice was so closely intertwined with ideas about folk magic and also the witch hunts. Right? They're 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 they're, they're really all connected. And then, you know, as you, as you just said, like, then we lose this whole set of knowledge that, like, you know, just went away for a really long time. That's right. Um, you know, so, and then you move on to just uh, other ways that uh, learned men seek to kind of define our world, um, which is this march through very important, chronologically, a march through very important so scientific discoveries. Um Including, you begin, of course, with the heliocentric universe, right? right. right. Which is something that has been with us for a much, much, it's an old, an idea that's older than the early modern period, but really comes absolutely. to a head here. Yes, absolutely. Right. So, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's it. Why now? Oh. Why? why? Like, tell, tell me what's going on. Yeah. So, um, you know, almost everyone has, has heard of Copernicus, right? Who, who publishes in 1543, this work that suggests that 
the Earth moves around the Sun. And uh, as you say, right, I mean, Copernicus himself uh, very uh, smartly points back to classical antiquity, right, and says, well, look, there are actually a number of famous classical thinkers who suggested that either the the earth moves around the sun or that there's some great fire at the center of the universe around which everything moves. So Copernicus said, I'm not alone in thinking this. Um, and he was also very careful. He, he dedicated his work on, on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres. He dedicated it to Pope Paul III. Uh, and he was very careful in how he framed it. Right. And he said, this is not necessarily, I'm not saying the earth really moves. I'm saying maybe it moves. I'm saying maybe we can consider a hypothesis or the probability that, that maybe the earth moves. Right. Uh, and that was okay. That was okay. That was okay to say uh, a thought experiment. I might suggest just mathematically that maybe the earth moves. Play with that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Maybe who knows? Hmm. Um, and in fact, it was so uncontroversial that for about 50 years after he published it, almost nobody bothered to use Copernicus to suggest that the Earth physically moved. Uh, they all just thought, yeah, mathematically, maybe that's maybe that's possible. Uh, but then we get to Galileo, right, uh, who kind of upends everything. Uh, and, you know, this is one of the sort of archetypal stories about the this terrible clash between religion and science that has survived into the present day. And as someone who, you know, you mentioned earlier, a lot of my work has been on religion and science in this period. I am, I, I don't subscribe to this idea of a clash between these two ways of thinking or these two systems. That's such a simplistic and, and frankly wrong way of, of actually looking at what happened. And so I use this chapter in my discussion of Galileo to, to make a case that this is really about authority and power, right? That this was Galileo challenging the prerogative of the Catholic church and its cardinals to decide who gets to study the universe and who gets to make pronouncements on the nature of physical reality. Um, and Galileo says, no, your job is to interpret scripture, which is very important. My job is to study the heavens and the universe and tell people what I, what I find there. And these are two separate tasks. They're both really important. You do your thing and you leave me to do mine. Uh, and um, the church, of course, says, well, no. <laughs> it's Pretty forcefully. It's, yeah, very forcefully, right. But of course, the problem is that it wasn't just Galileo's place to talk about whether or not the earth moves because Christian scripture says repeatedly that the earth does not move. Uh, and so the, the institution and the people who see it as their literally sacred duty to interpret scripture and to help the sort of average person understand scripture, they say, well, <laughs> you can't say something publicly that directly contradicts the revealed word of God. And, and at the same time, expect us to just sit on our hands and not, and not push back. Right. Um, and so in the end, right, this is not about, you know, sort of this tyrannical conservative religious institution 
um, oppressing this poor scientist. It's, it's about two different ways of thinking about well, who has the authority or who can or should claim the, the, the authority to make certain claims. Um, and Galileo discovered, yeah, he was not the person who, uh, who was able to claim that, at least not in a, in a sort of simple and un, unproblematic way. No, as it turns out, Galileo not as powerful as the whole of the Catholic Church. As he thought he was. Yeah, right? yeah as he right. thought he was. It's It was a particularly bad time to go for it, too, right? We've got this context of the church has had about enough. Yep, um, yep. There's yeah. Just, yeah, warfare, all kinds of, of, of stuff going on, and Galileo decides this, this is the moment to make a big stand. Like, well... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it is, it's important to note that you, you very much nuance this idea and you reject the idea of uh, the war between the science and religion, which really is, it's, it's, it's wrong. It's wrong headed. And it comes out of, I think, probably the 19th century, like, right. So that's, you know, the same people yes. who gave us the Renaissance, give us the idea that the church is fundamentally backwards. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and it's right. It's a, it's a tradition of right from the, the 19th and uh, 20th centuries of, um, mainly scientists writing histories of science, right? And, and, and wanting to declare this sort of cultural independence from, from religion. Um, what's really interesting is I, I use this book actually, to, I am teaching a class right now on using this book. And one of the things we did, we just finished last week was I asked my students to, to reenact Galileo's trial. And I, you know, half of them or some of them were, the conservative faction in the church, half of them, or some of them, I should say, were um, defending Galileo. And then there was a, a group of judges, right? People who were undecided, who were going to decide. And I, I gave them all the documents. I gave them all the information that these people would have had. And I said, it's your task to study this and then make a case. Should he be convicted as a heretic? Not. Uh, and they, uh, <laughs> then, right, these are, these are science majors for the most part. These are people who want to become scientists and become medical practitioners. And they ultimately decided that Galileo was guilty. Uh, and that's what's so interesting, I think, is when you actually look at the context, when you understand the context, when you look at what Galileo was saying and doing and what the church was saying and doing, uh, it's very difficult. Even if you come in with a whole set of assumptions and biases about who was right and who was wrong, once you really dig down in, into the history itself, you realize it's way more complicated and way more nuanced, right? Uh, and that to me is so wonderful that I can take a group of, you know, 21st century uh, college students and sort of ultimately have them side with the Catholic Church and with Aristotle <laughs> um, over this great innovator Galileo. Um, and, and it's just an, another illustration of how how more nuanced and interesting and complex this whole this whole case is. Yeah, it's also I mean, just God, everybody needs to study history. If we just if everybody yes. would study history, we would yes. just have live in a much better world, wouldn't we? Absolutely. Uh, all right, we're uh, moving on in time here. So, what are uh, what's sort of the the me mechanical philosophies of science? Right. So the mechanical philosophies, right? So Galileo's placed on trial 1633. Uh, and 
is found guilty. And someone who was watching really carefully the trial was uh, Descartes, the French philosopher Descartes, living in France. And because Descartes himself thought, I, I believe in a heliocentric universe as well. Uh, and I have some really cool ideas for a new philosophy, a new way of thinking about nature. Um, and I wonder if people would be interested. Oh, Galileo was found guilty of heresy and placed under house arrest. Never mind. I'm going to flee to Sweden and stay there for the rest of my life and not publish really anything until, uh, yeah, long after he was dead. So Descartes, along with Pierre Cassendi, are two French philosophers who independently come up with this idea in the 1630s, before that too, but really they began to publicize this in the 1630s, that we can describe everything in the universe, uh, or we can reduce everything to two variables, matter and motion. Uh, so everything we can witness in the, in the natural world can be explained by reference to those two things and nothing else, just matter moving somehow. And that's what we call the mechanical philosophies, uh, because they, they suggested to people, to their contemporaries, that the universe was one huge machine, right? It was a vast, complex machine uh, full of these moving parts. And uh, this is... This is my favorite chapter, actually, in this book, um, in part because I was first introduced to the history of science by Maggie Osler, uh, who was a really wonderful historian and philosopher of science at the University of Calgary when I was doing my undergraduate degree. And she studied Pierre Gassendi, uh, she was, who was an atomist. He was, uh, he was a French priest, a Catholic priest, who... Uh, revived the work of the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, who had this idea that everything was just atoms moving through a void. Um, and Gassendi took that idea and Christianized it and made it palatable to 17th century Christian Europeans and came up with this mechanical system. And, uh, and I have really vivid memories. This is well over 20, 20 years ago of sitting in Maggie's office as a impressionable wide-eyed student just for the first time imagining someone the audacity of someone to devise an entirely new system to explain everything in the universe I just I I just couldn't get over it um, and so this chapter is my talking about Gassendi and Descartes and their mechanical systems but really focusing on the religious and theological problems that were raised by these systems. Uh, you know, if you, if you imagine the universe as one big machine that just moves continuously in, in these various ways, there really isn't necessarily a place for God that's obvious in that, in that system, right? You can, you can and, and people did suggest that God created everything, of course. They, he, she, it created this material world, this system, and set it into motion. But after that, you don't need God, right? God isn't there tweaking things and keeping things going. God isn't this engineer who has to go back and fix this machine that keeps breaking down. Um, and so the chapter really looks at the impact these mechanical systems have, but really the deeper question about how do we find and secure a, a role for, for God, for the human soul, for things that are not made of matter. 
uh, how do we stuff those into a system that is predicated entirely on matter? And then if, if we don't have to go to God every day, like if God is not there messing around every day, who do we talk to? Who's my access, right? And if there's some giant machine, there's this whole body of people who've been rendered largely useless, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And there was a deep fear uh, that atheism derived from any source, right? Uh, but skepticism and doubt about the existence of God would lead inevitably to the breakdown of European society, right? That many people believed it was really only a fear of punishment after death and the consequences of sin that prevented most people from sinning. Uh, and if we take that away, people will think they can do anything they want. They can break any, any, any law they want. They can do anything without any consequence. And a lot of people genuinely thought that would, it would, you know, society would devolve into anarchy. Lawless, painful anarchy. Right. And, yeah. uh, and so, right. We get this interesting period kind of between 1630 and this sort of late 17th century where people are excited by these mechanical philosophies at the same time that they're deeply suspicious and concerned about the religious and theological implications. Um, and I described the, the sort of various ways in which Cassandi and Descartes tie themselves into knots, trying to make these, these two things fit, uh, two things that don't really necessarily fit very easily. Um, and they do so in very different ways and with different levels of success, I would argue, but um, it really isn't until Isaac Newton comes along in sort of the late 17th century and is able to propose a system that incorporates matter and motion and force uh, that we get this, a cohesive system that can describe the physical universe and because it uses or depends on this invisible intangible force like universal gravitation that affects everything simultaneously, that could become a stand-in for God. Right? And so um, Newton was able to create a synthesis a generation or two after Cassendi and Descartes that was really powerful in part because it was able to reintroduce uh, this intangible mediating force to a mechanical system. Yeah, perfect sense there, right? Um, in our remaining minutes, I would like you to tell me about alchemy. Yeah, I love alchemy. Uh, <laughs> so I, uh, so alchemy, right, is is uh, the, the so-called hidden art or secret art. Uh, supposedly goes back to again ancient Egypt, uh, reflecting the sort of European fascination with ancient Egypt. Um, but yeah, alchemy at its most basic alchemy is the study of the properties of matter. Uh, and in that sense, it is uh, very similar to what we call chemistry. And in fact, what pre-modern people called alchemy, they most often meant the things we now call chemistry, right? So, um, uh, practices used in dyeing, in, uh, right, creating certain, um, right, solutions and solvents, that was all part of, of alchemical practice. But it also uh, incorporated uh, ideas about the ability to transmute matter, right? So 
if 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 we can study how matter works and if we can unlock how to manipulate matter at its most basic level, which is what alchemy was fundamentally about, then surely we can figure out how to change one kind of matter into a different kind of matter. And this is where we get into the thing everyone knows about alchemy, which is this idea that 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 we can transmute base metals like lead or tin into noble metals like silver or gold. Uh, and uh, in fact, alchemy was really interested in a lot more than just transmuting metals. It actually has a really interesting um, medical component. So there were people who were searching for um, potable gold, which you know, gold that one could consume that could cure illness. The, the philosopher's stone, the this mystical maybe um, object that could transmute metals, it might also be used to heal disease or to, to make people immortal. So the idea that we can transmute um, matter in terms of metals, maybe we could also transmute the matter in the human body, right, as well. So there was a medical component there too. Um, but yeah, alchemy was, you know, it, um, it was again pursued by this sort of educated elite for a long time until about the 16th century when it proliferated into uh, this huge market of quacks and uh, fraudsters, right? Who were on every street corner selling alchemical tinctures and claiming to have produced the philosopher's stone. Um, and it, very quickly from the 16th and into the 17th centuries became associated with fraud and with trickery. Um, and we have people like Robert Boyle, the so-called father of, of modern chemistry in the late 17th century, who was a dedicated alchemist, uh, but who was also really working against this kind of, um, this growing uh, suspicion and distrust of alchemy uh, and having to kind of justify to himself and to his peers why doing this was actually worthwhile. Oh, poor alchemy. Such a poor alchemy. Yeah. Sad, sad story. Bad and, I, and it is, yeah. And it, you know, I, uh, I did my graduate work with Larry Principe at Johns Hopkins. He's a, and he studies the history of alchemy. He is himself also a practicing chemist and Larry's amazing. He has replicated uh, alchemical experiments um, that are mostly uh, couched or presented in emblems and anagrams and puzzles and images. It's not straightforward. It's it's all hidden. Um, and Larry has dedicated his career to solving some of these puzzles, figuring out some of these, these codes or these ciphers that the alchemist used and has actually been able to replicate some of the chemical work that they were doing and has discovered it was actually, some of it was very innovative really difficult chemistry um so yeah that's so cool i had no idea that is some like next level professoring right there. oh my goodness yeah uh, <laughs> you might imagine being the student of someone like that who's just in his you know in his lab uh, in a chemical hood uh you know talking 16th century alchemical experiments and i'm <laughs> <so> <laughs> Latin. It's like, well, yeah, you're sort of light years ahead of me, but uh, but uh, it was a really wonderful lesson for me in again why it's so important that this history survives and that we continue researching it and talking about it. It's still it, there's still so much for us to learn, um, 
uh, and, and, and it's still waiting for us to, to discover, uh, which, and so I, I find that really exciting. Yeah, that's a very cool. Okay. So, uh, what is it? If you can, <laughs> what's, let me ask you now, what's your argument, but no, uh, it's, is, is there a unifying theme? Can you outline a unifying theme, a clear progression from say Copernicus to chemistry that explains the, the big arc? Ooh, yeah. So I think one of the most important things that happens, one of the most important changes is the rejection of this adherence to classical or to ancient ideas, right? It's a willingness not to reject them outright, but to question, to critique, and to then propose different things, right? So someone like Copernicus, who is um, critiquing or you know, suggesting changes to Ptolemy's model, to Aristotle's ideas about the cosmos. Um, but then 80 years later, we get Descartes and Gassendi, who are just straight up saying, Aristotle is done. We're done with Aristotle. We want to put him in the ground for good and devise entirely new systems. Um, what I find so remarkable is this is really a, a relatively small span of time, right? This is 150 years or less, which is, I don't know how many generations of people that is, let's say five roughly, but you know, the very conception of what the world is and our place in it changed so dramatically in such a relatively small span of time um, that by the dawn of the 18th century and the beginning of the enlightenment, I mean, you know, European consciousness had been sort of launched into this whole new way of thinking about the world and about people and about society. And so that period to me is so exciting and so interesting in part because it begins by people saying, I don't know about if we should really still be reading Aristotle and using these people as a model to follow to write Newton, who just straight out says, yeah, here's a whole new conception of everything, literally everything. Right. Um, and, uh, so there's tremendous change and there's, uh, it's very exciting to watch that happen. But one of the really big arguments and one of the, the, the key themes that I, I try and make throughout the book is helping people reading it today realize we are really no different than the people that the book is, is talking about. And I think that's so important. Um, it's so easy for us as 21st century people with the internet and smartphones and everything else to imagine we're so much smarter than people were. We're so much, we, that, that we know so much more than, than people did in the past. And what I, what I hope to do with this book is really inject a sense of humility, right? And, and sort of help us recognize both people in the past were so innovative uh, and so uh, had such a, this amazing grasp of the world around them and their place in it. And, they were so dedicated to pushing forward and, and continuing to explore and to understand things. Um, and, but fundamentally we're all people, we're all humans. We all ask the same questions over and over again. And we're all dissatisfied with the answers we find, right? Because we're just never quite good enough. And so we keep looking, we keep, we keep searching for the, for the next answer. And um, I, I really hope that people come to appreciate that. 
right? Um, both that we don't know as much as we think we do today, um, but that also just on a really basic human level, we are just like the people who lived in the past. And that's, that's, that's a wonderful thing, I think, to know. That's, 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 that's a gift to, to recognize that, that continuity of the human experience. Right? Um, and asking these questions and wondering and searching for answers. Um, that's something we should continue doing. And I can't think of a more inspiring time and more inspiring group of people than the people that I am lucky enough to describe in this book. Oh, that's great. That is, that was, that was inspiring. I'm inspired. Thank you. Thank you you very much. That's great. So what, what's next? What are you working on right now? So I, um, I, I've been fascinated for a long time in, uh, this particular medical remedy that I mentioned in the book as well, the weapon salve or weapon salve, um, which was really popular for about a hundred years in the 16th and 17th centuries. It, could cure wounds over great distances if you applied it to uh, the weapon that had caused the wound or to traces of blood from the wounded patient. It uh, took ideas from magnetism and older ideas from, uh, from magical traditions, sympathetic or astrological magic, this idea that you could communicate uh, magical power across great distances if you had the right substances. And it's so it's such a fascinating topic to me because it is a topic of conversation at the very moment when so many things are changing in terms of how people understand the world. Um, you know, the weapon staff shows up and they're talking about it with they're they're using moss scraped from human skulls and they're using pieces of mumia, uh, preserved human flesh, and there's fat and there's human blood. It sounds a lot like like witchcraft. Sure does. Yeah. yeah. And then we get to the 1630s and the recipes completely change. They, they're talking about um, chemical substances. They're talking about vitriol, which is a kind of power, uh, crystalline acid. And it, what I find so interesting is as the mechanical philosophies were taking over, this particular remedy changed from uh, this sort of quasi-magical sympathetic thing to a mechanical remedy. And what I'm trying to do is explore uh, ideas about plausibility. Why did people believe this? And why did some people not? Why was it so controversial? Uh, even after its its identity and its method of being, of, of working, its efficacy changed so radically to keep up with the times uh, to me, it's a really interesting window on how modern people, how and why they believed things and how certain claims were deemed credible and how others were not. Um, and so I, I, I'm hoping to use it as a, as a window into some of these really kind of deeper questions about how people at this, in this time constructed and understood belief um, and credibility and authority back to kind of Galileo as well. So... Wow. Yeah, that'll be fun. Cool. Looking yeah. forward to reading that one. Yeah, thank you. All okay. right. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. It was really fun. Thank you. This was this was really fun. Great. All right. Take care. All right. Thank you, Yana. Bye. Bye.